Hello everyone, my name is Michael Hickens, and welcome to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of But I Digress. Uh, Today, I'm lucky enough to have an old colleague, CJ Farley, um, who is the author of Game World, My Favorite War, Kingston by Starlight, um, and Around Harvard Square, and his most recent novel, which just came out, Zero O'Clock, which is published this fall by Akashic's Black Sheep imprint. He's also written a number of nonfiction books, including the national bestseller, Aaliyah, More Than a Woman. Uh, The list of things he's done is longer than I really have time to recite or that you would want to listen to, but suffice to say that his short fiction has been featured in a number of anthologies, including the Vintage Book of War Fiction, a survey of the best war stories of the last 100 years. Um, He's also dabbled in TV, having been the consulting producer for Mr. Dynamite, The Rise of James Brown, which won a Peabody Award. Uh, He's won numerous other awards from the National Association of Black Journalists and the Deadline Club of New York. He's also um, a former music critic and senior editor for Time Magazine, and his 1999 interview with Lauryn Hill was the first time a rapper was featured on the cover of Time Magazine. He's the former senior editor for the Wall Street Journal, host and producer of the long-running video series The WSJ Cafe, as well as a graduate of Harvard University, where he worked as editor of the Harvard Lampoon. Uh, CJ is currently an executive editor for Amazon Inc's Audible. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for being with us, or me. Thanks for having me. I I guess after the intro, that's all we have time for. So that was great. Thank you. Okay, well, thanks, man. I'll talk to you. (laughs) Um, Listen, your your first novel, My Favorite War, was published by Farrah Strauss. Then Three Rivers Press published Kingston by Starlight. uh, And your other novels have been published by Akashic. Can you talk a little bit about this journey and why it seems like you found a semi-permanent home now with Akashic? Yeah, well, I I loved um, publishing my first novel with Farrah Strauss. You know, they're kind of an old school publisher. They're known for doing really great work, including uh, first novels. And I remember when I, uh, my book got accepted there, you know, Roger Strauss, who's the, the head of the publishing house then, you know, took me out to, um, to lunch and said how he considers me an FSG author now. It just really felt like you were being um, uh, brought into this really kind of um, cool society. And I hate clubs and I hate societies. <laughs> when it's about literature, and it's about accomplishment. I love being part of it. And uh, it was a great place to be. You know, I also love um, working with Akashic. You know, Akashic has published my last three books. Have all, they've all been young adult books. <clears throat> and what's great about Akashic is, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's very difficult to get a young adult book out there that has um, uh, a Black protagonists and addresses sort of important social themes. It may not seem that way because anecdotally we can all name various, you know, books by black authors and art um, and authors of color that we've seen out there on the bestseller list. But there's a place called the Children's Cooperative Book Center that tracks the number of um, uh, authors of color and black authors that have published books each year. And the truth is 
the numbers are really low and they've remained low for the last two decades and they've barely budged. So although anecdotally, we can all name a couple authors here and there, when you actually crunch the numbers, they're terrible. And that always annoyed me because it's so important, I think, for kids, not just black kids, uh, not just Asian kids, not just uh, Latin kids, and not just white kids, all kids from an early age to really get literature that's diverse and inclusive because it allows them to see the world through different eyes that, that aren't just their own. I think it makes them more empathetic and makes them better problem solvers and makes them better able to deal with the world as it is instead of this fantasy bubble that many of us live in that's exacerbated by social media where we only see people like us. We only see people in our zip code or in our socioeconomic group. And um, it makes it harder, harder for us to sort of deal with people as they are. So I write kids books, uh, young adult books for that reason because I think it's important for kids to broaden the horizons from a young age. Very few publishing houses are doing that on a consistent basis. Um, and uh, Akashic definitely is. It's a great place to be. And I'm really proud of publishing my work. Now, um, do you think that the issue with the paucity of Black authors, particularly in the young adult sphere, is a societal structural issue? Um, you know, I mean, and I, you know, not all writers went to MFA programs, but when I think back to my MFA program, um, I, I can't think of any African-Americans who were in that program. Um, I mean, you know, when I went to, when I went to undergraduate, there were probably, uh, other than, you know, there were probably a half dozen uh, African-Americans in a school of 900 people. So um, I think that there is something structural there, but I mean, what's your experience? Yeah, well, there's the several different issues going on here. Part of it is structural, structural that the whole literature establishment is, is created as this club to block out other people from um, the, the, the critics who are either um, usually white or have um, are predisposed to uh, like books that, um, that uh, sort of uh, are part of the whole sort of white patriarchal um, uh, structure um, to the publishing houses who are predisposed to publish books mostly by white authors. And if they're not by white authors, they're by authors of color who are going to fit their, uh, their narrative of what writers of color should be writing about to um, the fact that it's difficult to survive economically and be a writer. And so if you have family money, it's, you're more likely to become a writer because someone can support you through all the tough times when you're trying to get published and you, you don't have to uh, work in a, in a restaurant as a waiter to um, support that first novel or first collection of poetry. Um, most, most writers don't make enough money to live on um, from their writing. And that's just an established fact. And so if you have money in your family, you can do that. And the numbers show that um, white families um, have um, uh, more family money than black families. You know, that's also a statistical fact. So all those things play into the, um, uh, play into the, the numbers as to why there's so far fewer um, black authors writing um, writing uh, young adult fiction as there are white authors doing it. Uh, but it is a problem that can be changed and can be addressed just by um, editors at these publishing houses taking a chance, getting authors um, to write, uh, to, 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 um, signing up authors to write books for them. 
and also broaden the horizons into the, the kinds of subject matter these, these authors can, can address. If you look at the, the, the books that most black authors get to write, an incredible number of them um, deal with civil rights and slavery. Um, very, uh, civil rights, slavery, or gang violence. All of those are incredibly important issues to address. And I love to read some books that address those subjects. You know, my mother was a professor of African-American studies. So certainly um, those are subjects that, you know, she touched on and subjects that I think are very important. But they're not the entirety of the black experience. There are other things going on, but if you don't fit that narrative, if you read a book about black people at Harvard, people don't want to review it. People don't want to publish it, um, even though readers um, really want to read it. You know, it's funny, just a few, few weeks ago, I got invited by a class at Harvard that actually assigned my book um, uh, um, uh, around Harvard Square as a book they had to read for, for their class. And it was just great to sort of get <clears throat> uh, all the take from this class about what they thought of the book, how much they enjoyed it, what they got out of it. And uh, it's interesting to see that a book that's being taught in the class at Harvard isn't a book that necessarily got reviewed in the New York Times because again, it didn't fit their narrative of what black authors could, should um, be writing about. Do you have a sense of how black authors are marketed compared to how um, white or non-African-American writers are marketed? Yeah, in general, um, black authors that don't fit the prevailing narrative of what the publishing establishment wants us to write about don't get marketed as well. And that's just a fact. You can look at the, the, the advertising they get. You can look at the the push they get to get in front of reviewers. It's just, just not there. Um, so, so that's a big problem. And part of the problem is the way the publishing industry works is through comps. Um, they, get, they buy your book, um, they compare it to other books that, have, that, that are like it, that have succeeded, that have sold, and they base their marketing um, numbers uh, on the way things have performed in the past. But if you want things to change, you can't just base your marketing numbers, your acquisition numbers on things you've done in the past because you haven't been doing this in the past. Right. You have to base it on, well, is there a market out there to buy this stuff? Is there, are there people out there that want to read this stuff? And there are other numbers that show that one of the, the hungriest, smartest, um, uh, most inquisitive uh, groups of readers out there is Black women. They love um, uh, reading um, novels and books and yet you, you don't see them as heavily marketed to as they should be. And also black men in particular love reading books that they think are gonna help them in life, whether they're how-to books or whether they're um, biographies that can give them some, a sense of, um, of uh, someone else has succeeded. Uh, there's a hunger for those kinds of books. And yet the, um, the publishing world doesn't always feed that hunger and it makes no sense. And I know people out there go like, oh, it's just about numbers. They're only following what the numbers are. But time and time again, the entertainment industry has shown that they're willing to flaunt the numbers and not do things that are actually in their economic interests because of racism and because of illusions about the audience out there. I found it very interesting to see that the, the, the movie um, uh, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, a fantastic Marvel movie, about a quarter of that movie or so was actually in Mandarin, and yet it made lots of money around America and around, around the world 
and it flies in the face of what people say, like, if you have a movie with subtitles, it's not going to make any money. Uh, it, it, it can, and it will. Look at look at what happened with um, with uh, Squid Game on Netflix, a movie that's subtitled. Granted, a lot of people are sort of watching it in, in, in dub, but still, it's a movie that's a foreign, a foreign, it's a series, it's a foreign language series. It busted out. If they'd just been looking at the hard numbers of how subtitled um, content from other countries tends to do in America, they might have passed on that. Luckily, they didn't. And it just showed you got to look beyond the, um, the numbers, you got to look at what can be, not just what's happened already. Now, you know, it's interesting because um, you work at Audible as an editor. Um, and, you know, the Squid Games is, uh, was put out by Netflix, which is still, I think, considered, you know, a disruptor in the entertainment industry. Um, and Audible is in a similar position in that, you know, you're, and I don't know that um, most people know this, but you publish original works, not just sort of readings of existing print books. Um, do you, do you see similar tendencies in Audible to kind of just sort of follow the existing numbers or because you're in a disrupt, you're, you're disruptors yourselves, are you looking at different things and what, what are you seeing? Yeah, what we really try to do is we, we try to give people what they want, what they want to read, obviously, and people like to read rom-coms. We have those for them. But we also try to make sure we're reaching new audiences. You know, for example, in my ten tenure at Audible, you know, I'm working on a podcast with Steph Curry. I've worked on a podcast with Blake Griffin, trying to introduce different kinds of voices into the podcasting space. Uh, one of my first products I worked on at Audible was a project called Motherstruck by the Jamaican-American poet, Stacey Ann Chin. It was a story of um, a lesbian woman in New York who's single, who wants to try to have a baby through in vitro fertilization. It's funny, it's heartbreaking, it's smart, it's poetic. Um, it got nominated for an Audi um, and it, um, it catered to um, the, the LGBTQ plus marketplace that maybe other people weren't reaching. And, um, and it was great to get that product out there. Another product I did was a, a product called Sex, Raising Robots by Dr. Ayanna Howard. Dr. Ayanna Howard is the, um, uh, one of the leading roboticists in the world. She's also one of the few black female roboticists. And the product was about the way which um, uh, gender and race bias is actually hardwired into artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. and how we can't treat AI as this neutral arbiter of things. We have to realize that it reflects the bias of the people that programmed it originally, even if it's learning. A really smart book, Whoopi Goldberg picked it as one of her um, top books of the summer. Um, so it, she got in the view and talked about it. And again, um, it's just great to have authors like that that are breaking the mold of how people view what a roboticist looks like, um, uh, what a, a love story looks like, um, what, whatever, whatever genre looks like, there are authors out there who can sort of take that to new places and um, say new things. So we're I guess always, the question, I try to do that at Audible all the time. I guess the question is, how do you make the, like, what data or is it data that drives the decisions? Or is it simply, hey, we don't have one of those. We don't know how it's going to do, but we're going to take a risk. Well, it's both data and it's just um, common sense and looking at Who's out there that um, who's uh, as a market that hasn't been served yet? Who might 
we want to bring to the publishing world and to Audible, uh, and making um, content that serve those uh, serves those audiences. And if you look at the numbers for those books, you look at the ratings I've gotten from from readers, you can see they're really high. So um, it did succeed in reaching new audiences, and also got a lot of critical acclaim. But you know, you can't just go by the numbers because sometimes things come out they're terrific, and they don't do well for whatever reason. And uh, I think if you do a book and you believe in it and it works out well and the creator is satisfied with it and you as an editor feel like you did the best possible job, that is, is satisfied. Would you like to have a hit every time? Certainly. But what you need, do need to do is every time you do a book, make sure it's something you really believe in. Make sure it's something that, you, that it's worth staying up late on weekends to finish editing. And that when you publish it, you think, okay, we really did something here. I really believe in this project. I just did a product recently called um, Meltdown, which is about the government's failed response to the 2008 financial crisis. Um, it's, it was written by David Sirota, a terrific investigative journalist. It's produced by Jigsaw Productions, which is Alex Gibney's production, production company. Alex Gibney did Enron, Smartest Guys in the Room. It was an Oscar-winning documentary filmmaker. And it's performing quite well, but no matter how it performed, I was just really pleased and proud to get out a product that really examined how the government's failed response to that financial crisis helped put us in the political and social and economic mess uh, we're currently grappling with today because they failed to really get a good enough deal from the banks, cut them a sweet deal, and it really left a lot of pent up anger around mm -hmm. America about why can't you let these, these bankers off with this sweet deal when we're dealing with the ramifications um, of this whole financial crisis. So it's great to have a product like that out there. And no matter how it performed, um, I would have felt good about it. And that's the approach I take for every product that I work on. So we talked a little bit about sort of the, the front end, if you will, and the, the, the back end is sort of how a book is received, both in terms of sales, but also criticism. And um, you said in an interview about uh, your, your, your novel around Harvard Square, you said, certainly my novel, which is about a super smart Jamaican-American Harvard freshman fighting the powers that be, isn't something that's going to find legions of champions in the world of homogenized literary criticism. So that said, did you find that social media or places like Goodreads helped you find a larger audience? Is there another viral way to sell a book that isn't the traditional A.O. Scott New York Times book review? Well, what's great is when books like that get, you know, lauded and embraced, you know, by the very audience that you're trying to reach. And um, around Harvard Square, I ended up winning the um, NWCP Image Award that year for um, uh, young adult fiction, which is really gratifying. I didn't expect to win. I didn't expect to be nominated. And uh, the Image Awards, and as you've ever been, they're a terrific show. There are all these other stars there and, and you know, directors and actors. And it's just good to have literature sort of placed on that level where they're celebrating, celebrating your work alongside the work of all these Hollywood um, big shots and executives. So, so that's cool for a work of young adult fiction to get recognized by the, by the NWCP Image Awards as something that is, one, is, is the best book of the year in that category. Um, but that said, you know, you have to be wary of, and all others need to be wary of, um, uh, of the way the internet works when it comes to um, uh, um, 
uh, uh, works by creators of color. Uh, and I, I wrote about this once, but like, for instance, like, like Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes seems like this neutral arbiter of, of um, whether um, movies are good or bad. You know, um, either fresh or it's not fresh. And um, it's just an aggregate of, of the scores done by, by, um, by uh, the, the critics around, around the country. Of course, for the most part, those critics are, are, are white um, and an overwhelming number of them are male, much more than 50%. And then finally, um, uh, uh, the, the audience, a lot of them are trolls. Trolls were specifically trying to target um, black content <clears throat> that to them seems like it has a social agenda. It, for instance, if you go to the Rotten Tomatoes score for Black Panther, <clears throat> the, um, the, uh, the, uh, in which I think anyone of goodwill mostly thinks that movie was a really good movie. Um, the, uh, the, uh, and it was Oscar nominated and all that kind of stuff. But the, the critic score is pretty high. I think it's in the 90s. But the, um, the, the score from the audience, trolls who sort of targeted to just try to destroy it, is somewhere like, I think it's 80s or the 70s. They're really targeted. And that have also happened with the movie Get Out. Um, the mm -hmm. audience score is far lower than the critical score or any reasonable person would have assigned to that movie. And that happens again and again on Rotten Tomatoes when it comes to black content or when it comes to content that seemed to be feminist. Um, and, um, and you see that again and again, but in less obvious ways in other kinds of um, social media spheres that you think might think um, um, might be neutral in some way. So you don't often get the kind of support you should from social media and I don't expect it, but it's good to have um, spaces that um, people of goodwill have created, like the end of WCB Image Awards, that can support you, that can celebrate you. But just the other day, I was on some session with a Spelman student who used the phrase that you shouldn't be, um, uh, um, uh, uh, you shouldn't be, uh, okay, make sure I get this right, you shouldn't be um, uh, problem-minded, you should be solution-oriented. I thought that was just so powerful that, that, that a good way to live your life, to not be problem-focused, to be um, solution-minded, um, and, 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 uh, and so even though these things are out there and they damage Black literature and they may hurt Black creators, I try to look for solutions and the positive side of things, and the positive side of things is things like the NWC Image Awards that do celebrate work they think is worthwhile. Um, so you've written fiction and you've written a lot of nonfiction as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about just sort of the process of the, the business end of, um, you know, do you have one agent that handles all your work? Do you have different agents for the different genres that you work in? Um, you know, what is the process like for you in terms of juggling those two fairly different spheres? Yeah, you know, I don't, I think these days people toggle between things that seem to be separate spheres much more, whether it's TV and film or podcasting and books or fiction and nonfiction. I do think in the seventies with the rise of like you know, Tom Wolf and new journalists and Tom Wolf going from being a reporter to being a novelist with things like the Bonfire of the Vanities and uh, A Man in Full, people get began to realize, you know, the kinds of techniques you use to sort of bring out good journalism and journalism, you know, um, uh, it makes sense to, to not separate them so much. Obviously you have to brand, uh, you have to tell audiences whether you're writing fiction 
are nonfiction. But once you've done that, once you're alerted, well, okay, this is what this is. This is fiction. This is nonfiction. You can have fun doing whatever you want and not feel like you can only write for one form or another. So I don't view them as completely separate spheres, spheres, um, fiction and nonfiction. I, I only have one agent that works with me on both things. She works with other people sometimes when it's come to selling things to the movies or whatnot. But I, I have one agent handle all my stuff. No, but the, uh, obviously, like um, you wrote uh, a biography of Aaliyah after she passed away. Um, there are things that are that are more time sensitive. I think I, nonfiction tends to have more timely topics, um, whereas fiction can be a little more evergreen. How do you decide when to jump into a project, and you know, are you going to be able to deliver something in a timely manner? Because you know, uh, just uh, I don't know, for the sake of argument, um, if you were uh, in uh, June of last year. Um, and you wanted to write something about George Floyd, knowing that uh, six months later, um, you know, the, the half-life of the George Floyd headlines would be like, you know, a, a tenth of what it was in June. So how do you decide, can I, you know, do I have something to say? Can I say quickly enough? What, you know, and can I get it out there? Yeah, I, I disagree with the premise that um, nonfiction is somehow um, has a half-life that's sort of shorter than fiction or that somehow has to be more timely. I, I, I disagree with that. And I'll tell you why. Um, you know, I, I once had an editor, I think you know, you know too, you know, Walter Isaacson at Time Magazine. And um, I remember um, he was working on a book about Ben Franklin. And the, the summer before, the year before he'd finished his Franklin book, some other guy came out with a Franklin book that was really well received. It might've even won, the, won, it won a bunch of big awards. It was a bestseller. And he seemed not to sweat it at all. <laughs> because he knew it wasn't about other people sort of jumping in and suddenly publishing and discovering Ben Franklin. It was about writing a, a great book. And he delivered a, a, a book. And I, I happened to be editing this book, this um, editing this um, series for time at the time called The Making of America, where every um, July 4th would do a special issue looking at some, one of the so-called founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin. And we did Ben Franklin and I read like, over the course of like six months, I read like every Ben Franklin book I could, um, maybe like a dozen books. Um, and, uh, and, and there are hundreds of Ben Franklin books that have been published. So Walter's book comes out, I read it. And wouldn't you know, it's actually the best Ben Franklin book I ever read. So it didn't have, he didn't have to rush it out. He didn't have to beat the competition. He just had to follow his reporting instincts, report it out, write it out, think it out and come up with the very best Ben Franklin book. And, forget the competition, he blew them out of the water and it was a massive, huge bestseller. Um, and so I always remember that when I'm thinking about racing ahead to beat the competition where sure, it's fun to be first. Sometimes it's, it's helpful to be first, but it's better to be the best. And if you're the best, you're gonna blow the competition out of the water no matter when it's published or who publishes it. Well, I don't disagree with your premise, but do you, do you find that A, publishers are willing to make that bet and B, that the audiences are also still interested. Yeah, certainly that's true. I mean, um, I wrote my Bob Marley book um, before the legend, The Rise of Bob Marley, many years after the death of Bob Marley. And I found there's still new stuff to discover. Like for example, um, the book that many will consider the definitive book on Bob Marley, uh, Catch a Fire by Timothy White. Um, 
uh, it miss it it, it, it it keeps referring to him as um you know uh being um uh um uh, his, his 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 father being white and his mother being black looking into the subject it turns out and i found documentation um in the in his in his ancestors marriage certificates to to, to prove this turns out his his father was also a man of color who was passing as white and so i just found it very interesting that um uh books miss things all the time that they um they don't always delve as deep into the subject as they could and that if you're really intrepid um if you're a really hard-working journalist you can find new facts that other people haven't found out. There's always a new story to be told if you're willing to commit yourself deeply to the project. So that sort of bizarrely leads me into the next question I have for you, which is um, <clears throat> this level of commitment um, requires, um, I mean, th th there's the commitment you make, um, I guess, you know, internally to yourself that you're gonna you know, pursue a particular uh, project, but then everything else has to be organized around that, or that project has to fit into everything else. And so, you know, you you wear many hats uh, um, as uh, a writer of both fiction and nonfiction, um, not books, but also articles. Um, you know, if someone were to Google your name. Um, they would find articles uh, that you've written in myriad publications um, consistently. I mean, this is like, you know, not just in support of a book, but, you know, all the time. And then there's the well, work well, 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 first, at, first, if they, they're Googling, they'd probably see the, um, the comedian Chris Farley. And they go, like, <laughs> I know Chris Farley was a journalist. And then they would find my name and go, oh, that's the journalist. Then they'd see all the articles. So, but sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, that's fine, because I was going on too long anyway. My point just is that you're you you write a lot of fiction and nonfiction and articles and you work at Audible, and um, you have a family. Do you? How do you see yourself, and how do you structure your life to, you know, um, correspond to that vision that you have of yourself? And well, that's you know, my dog. I read a lot of poetry, especially Rainer Maria Rilke. And he has two points that kind of speak to this. Um, there, there's this, um, you know, in um, Requiem uh, for a Friend, he has he has a line where he talks about um, how um, all the kinds of like ins and outs of an ordinary day can kind of affect, kind of finish a years long work. I think we all feel that sometimes where when we kind of finish some big work, the thing that takes us away from it the most sometimes is all these little things that happen to us during the day taking out the garbage, taking care of the cable bill, taking the dog for a walk. And meanwhile, we have this big thing we're trying to finish and it's just hard to get it done, hard to get the great work done while the little tiny things of the day eat away at, at us. Um, but that said, I feel that a lot of the, those little tiny things of the day are actually the things that feed into my fiction. For example, for the last book I wrote, Zero O'Clock, um, my son and my daughter gave me a lot of advice on writing that book could set at a high school. And in the end, I actually created a Google Doc of the book and had shared it with their friends so they could comment on the book, whether the language worked, whether some facts were wrong, um, whether I got what a quarterback does, a high school quarterback's day is like. So that was all very helpful. So all those little things that may have annoyed other writers, I can help contribute to the finishing of that book. 
and the other point that Wilka makes, I think, in, in, in um, a, a letter, letter to a young poet, um, where he talks about how, you know, the way you decide whether or not, you know, you want to, uh, you want to commit yourself to your art is sort of looking deep inside yourself for a deep answer. And if that answer is, you know, I must, I must write these things, then you've got to sort of build your life out accordingly. And um, I feel that's also true that, um, yes, there are a lot of things that sort of eat away at your ability to sort of finish a work or, or, or become a poet or become a nonfiction or fiction writer. But when you really are in your sort of in your, uh, in the privacy of your own home, the privacy of your own thoughts, if you think to yourself, this is what I have to do, um, this is who I am at, 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 at my deepest level, then whatever else is out there, you've got to figure out how to structure it so you can keep writing. You can keep doing the thing that really sort of gives your life its main purpose. And I've also done that. So would you be satisfied with what you're doing if it were just your writing and not your writing published and in the world? Because that's a component of it too, right? Is you spend X amount of time writing and revising and then pitching. Now you're in a position now where you have relationships um, and uh, the a certain amount of variability is taken out of the equation. But if you think back to when you were first starting, and I think that you know the um, the audience for this podcast is really people who are trying to be writers, wondering how does this work, and we're all and I think. It, one of the reasons I'm excited to have you on this podcast is because you are somebody who's also got all these other things going on. Um, and uh, in other words, you're not Stephen King and the, one of the other four people who managed to actually make a living from fiction exclusively, right? So the question is, you know, that this is what I must do to give my life meaning. Is it enough just to be doing the writing or does it have to have an audience? Yeah, you know, I, I, it's funny, I was just watching um, this series on TV called Dickinson. It was kind of a fictionalized take on the life of Emily Dickinson starring Haley Stan Stanfield. And there's one line, and one thing they point out in the series, which is true, is that Emily Dickinson didn't publish during her lifetime on her own name. She got a bunch of scraps of poems published anonymously, but I don't believe nothing, nothing really prominent under her own name during her lifetime. And yet, she lives on more than any of her members of her family. You know, she's the only one named Dickinson we care about in her family, as the series points out. Um, and one character in the show says a line that I think is really, um, really kind of uh, telling. He says, um, um, publicity, publicity and immortality aren't the same things. <laughs> and there are plenty of um, people who were maybe famous in their day who we don't read anymore. Pearl Buck, author of The Good Earth, won the Nobel Prize. Nobody reads Pearl Buck anymore. Why would you ever read The Good Earth? You'd, you'd probably read a, a book by an actual Chinese or Chinese-American author about those same things and not turn to Pearl Buck for her work. So she won a Nobel Prize, massive bestseller. We don't care. Um, then there are authors like Emily Dickinson, who did not sell, wasn't really published during her lifetime, who will live on forever in our hearts. So um, when you're writing, you're not, certainly it's great to have an audience. It's great to have a following. That's fun. But you don't write to be famous. You don't write to have a huge audience. You don't write 
even if you don't write because it, it, you don't you don't base whether you're gonna write or not based on whether someone's reading you or not. You write because you have something within you that compels you to write. That voice that Rilke talked about saying you must, and you get it out there anyways. You don't care whether or not it has a huge following or not. And one more point I want to make. I remember back when I was at the Wall Street Journal, I got really bummed because I wanted to get Amy Winehouse to come in and do this series I did at the WJ Cafe. And I kept trying to get her to come in and she couldn't, it couldn't happen because she had some sort of outstanding marijuana convictions or something, but it couldn't work out or whatever. And of course, later, later on, she ended up dying. I did talk to her on the phone, but I never got her to come in. And so another publisher said, hey, I got this other person you might like who's, um, who's also a really up and coming British singer songwriter. You'll, you'll like her, great vocalist. I'm like, okay, brought her in. And I remember I was sitting there in the rehearsal beforehand. It's a very small rehearsal room we had there. It was just me and, and, um, and this, this singer singing, it was, it was Adele. And she started singing um, uh, 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 Someone Like You. And from the first note, I'm like, holy freaking cripes, I can't believe my luck. This <laughs> was one who was mostly unknown because she only had Chasing Pavements as her hit so far. Suddenly I realized we got her here. She can perform at the Wall Street Journal for like 50 people for this silly little video series I got. And I think she's gonna be a huge star. And about a week later, she was so big, we couldn't have gotten her. And then it always tells me we're, we're all just a song away from or a book away from or a poem away from breaking out and being superstars. If it happens, fantastic. If it doesn't, you know, at least you enjoy what you're doing. And that moment just really taught me um, how, how small the difference is between being a totally unknown person that I'm bummed I had to settle for to uh -huh. suddenly realize that when she opened her mouth, holy cripes, I've got an old timer here. Um, and I can't believe the luck I have and life is fantastic. So when did you realize that you had this compulsion? When did you decide that you were gonna be a writer? You know, uh, I can't remember the exact moment because back when I was um, really a little kid I, um, that, I, that I, I really wanted to be a writer. I remember, um, you know, as I mentioned before, my parents taught at the State University of New York at Brockport. My dad taught economics, who's head of the economics department. My mother taught African-American studies. She was the head of the African-American studies department. And so we used to have visitors come by all the time who they'd brought into the college to sort of lecture or talk or talk to the, the students. I remember one time they, um, uh, uh, one time uh, they, um, oh, uh, one time they, they brought in, uh, it, it, my parents didn't, but the school did, brought in Isaac Asimov, who's um, one of my favorite authors um, ever. He wrote Foundation, um, you know, being adapted to a new series. Um, uh, and just the idea of having um, a guy like Isaac, Isaac Asimov come to um, Brockport, New York, where I'm from, really sort of showed me that, geez, you know, Brockport, New York is not just a gateway to um, other things, it's a gateway to the whole universe. Mm -hmm. like Isaac Asimov can come by and actually talk to us. And then I also remember having um, Gwendolyn Brooks. My mother brought her in for a talk. And Gwendolyn Brooks is the first um, black person to win the Pulitzer Prize. She's a terrific poet. Um, and when she came by the house, I was really young then, I was in grade school. And I remember she came to the house, she was there talking to my, my mom, I said, hello. I went upstairs, I looked in my um, encyclopedia and Gwendolyn Brooks was in my encyclopedia back when we had encyclopedias. And I couldn't believe someone sitting downstairs, this black woman, this black woman writer um, was, was in the encyclopedia. And here she was in Brockport, New York, which is Nowheresville, downstairs in my living room, talking to my mom, mom and dad. That also let me know this is real. Um, the people you read about in books, the people whose names are on books, 
they're real people who can do real things and we can all become those things because um, you know, they're as real as we are and we can be as real as them. And, um, and it's not a fantasy to think you could become uh, um, a big time author. And so who were your, your role models? Or did you have any? Yeah, my role models really were my parents because both my parents were published authors. My dad published um, The Economics of Latin America, which is a seminal work about, um, about, um, uh, about um, uh, uh, the way economics works in, in, um, in, in um, South America. And my mother published a number of scholarly works and works about um, slavery in, um, in New York State and um, and um, it both uh, and um, and the black experience pre-slavery and post-slavery, and seeing their books on our shelves and seeing them the, the work that it took them to get those books out there is very inspirational to me. It's very instructive to me, and again, it signaled to me this can be done. You can write about big, great subjects and get them out there. And I knew this because I'd seen my parents do it right in front of me. It's interesting because you saw them. You saw it could be done. And you also saw, I mean, the realism of it. I mean, they, like your dad wrote the seminal work in a particular topic and that didn't make him rich. So it's level set. And I don't mean to say that every, all anyone wants to do is become rich, uh, far from it, but like you could see the work that he had to be put into it. And then the other work that he had to do and your mother had to do just to continue to, you know, pay the bills, right? Yeah, it also sends to me, how much money do people really need? I mean, my parents were, Anyone knows if you're, if you're a professor for the, for the State University of New York at Brockport, you're living a pretty comfortable life. I mean, uh, professors get paid pretty well, and they, they get nice houses, they you know they get great um, great pensions, they get great benefits. Um, not everybody has to be an internet millionaire. Right. Um, and and no kid who is a son or daughter of a professor grows up thinking I don't have enough. If they do, they're kind of there's something wrong with them. You, you've got plenty. <laughs> if both your parents are tenured professors. And so it felt like being rich to me. Um, and I think it probably feel like being rich to most Americans if, you're, if your parents are tenured professors at the State University of New York at Brockport. So I, I, I grew up thinking, okay, I don't need to make trillions of dollars to be happy or feel satisfied or have an effect on the world or have an effect on particular students. And today I try to emulate them in that I teach at Iona um, University, which is the university um, um, at uh, in New Rochelle. Occasionally, I'm an adjunct at um, at uh, Columbia, um, uh, where my, my son now goes. But I can see that you can have an outsized impact. You don't have to be rich to have an outsized impact on young people who want to go into um, uh, the tech world. They want to go into journalism. They want to go into writing. Um, you don't have to be rich to do that. You just have to you know have be fairly stable and be able to sort of model your life for them and say, look, you know, I'm doing this. I'm not Elon Musk, but you know, I got two cars. So things are working to get, I mean, sure, sure they're both Hondas, but you know, we're, we're doing pretty well. Yeah, I, to be honest with you, I don't think that many people know that being a tenured professor at uh, uh, State University of New York uh, is, pays well. Um, but, and you're right, I think also that um, we, we tend to, I, well, I think we, we, you know, this is evidence of the sort of decline of the middle class, right? I mean, I think that we're, we're, we're increasingly looking at the world in terms of, are you making a lot of money or are you making no money, 
right? And there is still, fortunately, uh, a, a, a big chunk of, uh, of us that, who, who can make good money and um, enough money. Uh, yeah, I, I, just, I just never understood. Like, people who are multimillionaires, I don't understand why they're still reporting to boring jobs. I just don't get that. And I get a much better sense of satisfaction in people's lives, people who are teaching. Because you know, my, 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 my brother teaches at, the, um, at Albany Law School. Um, he, he loves being a law professor. Um, and that lifestyle where you're making a good amount of money, you're, you're having an effect on young minds, you're engaged all the time, intellectually speaking, um, that's a fantastic life. And it is sad that people think, okay, I have to be on Wall Street. I have to be you know, working with derivatives. I have to do that in order to have a satisfactory life. I think your life, for the most part, is actually far less satisfying doing that or being a journalist. I look back at my time being a journalist where I'm, and I'm hanging out with Radiohead in Scotland, um, interviewing Bob Dylan in Los Angeles and going on tour with him. You know, I'm having Adele give me a private concert um, before she, she, she sings to the Wall Street Journal. Those would be peak experiences for like any other person. But as a journalist, that's a, that's a Friday. <laughs> that's what you right. do as a journalist. And you can't pay money to get those things. Radiohead isn't going to let you go on a tour with them. If you give them $10 million, you still can't go out on a tour with Radiohead. You still can't hang out in Lauren Hill's house, which I've done. But those things are all things you get to do as a journalist. And um, why do you need more money? Uh, you can't buy those things. I think that we could go way off on a digression about the fact that I don't think that it's people want way more money to be journalists. I think people look at the media landscape and go, uh, I'm, you know, I'm someone having a head cold away from being laid off. Um, I think that that's, you know, that's a whole other digression. I wanted to ask you before we go, and I realize that we're uh, running up against time. Um, what is your relationship to physical books? Do you, do, you, do, you, do you like to dog ear them and write in them? Or do you bookmark them, you know, and keep them kind of carefully? And, you know, what, what's your relationship to the physical object? Well, first off, you know, since I work for Audible, I love audiobooks. I've always loved audiobooks because, you know, my son is someone who loves audiobooks. And I found that by playing audiobooks in the car or giving him access to audiobooks in his room, he would read a lot more because there's something about the way his brain worked where he enjoyed hearing the book read to him. And he was a voracious reader of books um, that, were, that were on tape, books that were digital, books that he could listen to in his ears. And it served him well. And he, you know, he's at Columbia now. So it worked out well in terms of being able to hear books. So that was a trigger for me thinking, okay, you can actually educate yourself through audiobooks. At some point, I think a lot of people think, oh, listening to books is kind of cheating. No, it isn't. It actually feeds your brain um, in new and different ways that are, that are related to reading the physical book. But I do love physical books too. I often find myself rebuying books I've heard on Audible. I'll buy the physical copy if I really like it, put it on my shelf. So my kids can find it too. Um, I'll, I'll buy the hardcover editions of books I have in paperback because I want to have like, the hardcover of Ursula K. Le Guin's The Left Hand of Darkness. I recently listened to the audiobook version of that. And it just brought back so many great memories of what a great book that is. I thought, I want to have the hardcover on my shelf as well. Um, the one thing I regret, though, is I didn't realize till later. Used to, I don't know if you've done this too, but I used to always throw away 
or, or giveaway actually, um, the, uh, the galley copies of books that I was sent. And so I sent a lot of great galley copies of books. I sort of gave away, thinking, okay, it's a galley, I'll wait, for, I'll wait for the real hardcover. Turns out galley copies are a real collector's item and they're really cool to have. But luckily the one galley copy I didn't give away is my galley copy of Infinite Jest, which is signed by David Foster Wallace. I got a galley copy early. I later interviewed him. Uh, it's actually, um, uh, according to one book, of the last major interview he did before he died. And so having that galley, and if you read the, there's a book came out called The Last Interview with David Foster Wallace, and I'm in that book. Um, but having that galley copy around, it, it brings back memories of, of talking to the guy and how complex and frustrating and odd and brilliant he was. And so just having that hard copy around and flipping through that first page and seeing the little um, weird kind of emoticon-like scribble he did on the first page, it's, that's just cool to do sometimes. Yeah, uh, and if you hadn't been a writer, is there something you think would have been like a dream vocation? And I know that you're not a, um, uh, you're not going to tell me you would have wanted to be center fielder for the Yankees. Um, but uh, is there something, President of the United States, you know, uh, chalice for the New York Philharmonic, something that you thought, if I hadn't been a writer, I would have been this. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't really think in those terms because I think that um, whatever I do, um, I, I, I don't see myself as a, as a writer as a storyteller. And you tell stories in different forms, whether it's in journalism, um, where you're telling nonfiction stories, um, whether it's in podcasting, um, where you're telling stories through conversation, um, or whether it's in you know, other forms of audio fiction, where you're telling stories dramatically. Um, in some way. Um, so whatever business I'm in, I always see myself as a storyteller, communicating stories that I think are going to help give voice to the voiceless or um, uh, get people to pay attention to a certain issue that I think is important or entertain people in a way that I think will you know, make, make them better or smarter or more engaged human beings. And that's what I'm always trying to do no matter um, what profession um, that storytelling is sort of manifesting itself in. So at, at my heart, I'm a storyteller, no matter what profession um, I might happen to be in the same, same time. I feel it serves me well in the tech space because not everybody has that kind of commitment to the facts, to the truth, to telling stories that are true at their heart. And, um, and having that background really helps me out to bring that kind of hard edge to the work that I'm doing now. Chris, thanks so much. Really appreciate the time. This is fabulous, fabulous podcast. It was great. It was great to talk to you too. And I, and I look forward to listening to this when it goes up. So thank you for spending the time with me. You've been listening to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. I'm your host, Michael Hickens. If you like what you just heard, want to find more episodes, or want to know more about me, visit my website at michaelmissing.com.